Hey there everyone, welcome aboard to another episode of this Between the Lines podcast. This is your host Mayuresh and today we will be taking a look at what happened in week 2 of the Champions League round of 16 first leg ties. Our prime focus will be on the games in Italy. We will also be taking a look at what happened at the Dragao in Portugal as Porto beat Arsenal by a goal to nil. We'll also be taking a look at the circus in Munich and we'll be dissecting it in brief and also a brief discussion of what happened in the Premier League. But we will start at the Estadio Giuseppe Miazza, also known as the San Siro, where Inter have just scraped past Atletico Madrid by a goal to nil. So personally, for me, Inter against Atletico de Madrid was always going to be the most intriguing tie of all the eight matches that were drawn after the draw was made for the round of 16. And this was because of the nature of these two coaches that they were not going to play their cards in the first game, irrespective of the venue which was chosen for the first leg. We all know, by the way, that it was always going to be the Giuseppe Miazza because Inter finished second in the group and Atletico topped the group where they had Lazio and Feyenoord. So, yeah, there was uh, that was already given that Inter were going to play the first leg in Milan and then they would take the game to the Civitas Metropolitano in Madrid. So, yeah, as I said, they were not going to... Uh, play all their cards in the first leg, irrespective of the venue of the game. I never thought that uh, uh, these two managers are going to go against their nature, especially in cup competitions. And we all know how Diego Simeone has been in cup competitions over the years, whether it's whether it's been in Spain to a certain extent, or especially in Europe, where he has this some rigid footballing methods, which always have worked out against the very, very... Good sides as well. Uh, we all know that these two teams, given the fact that they are so pragmatic in nature in terms of the football management, they were not. They were, they were always going to be treating this this tie, or for that matter, any tie, as a marathon over 180 minutes. And this was this game was a complete and utter impression of the nature of these two managers, of Diego Simeone and of also uh, Simone Inzaghi. Of course, there are different contexts related to these two teams. Inter and Atletico Madrid both uh, were coming off heavy victories in their respective leagues. Uh, we all know what happened against Salernitana at this very stadium, at the Giuseppe Miazza, at the weekend in Serie A. Inter absolutely smashed them for four goals. The first half was just incredible. They were playing some really good football. And then they had that one goal in the end, in the second half which made it 4-0. On the other end, in the Civitas Metropolitano, Atletico Madrid played Las Palmas, and they absolutely obliterated them. They won the game by five goals to nil or something. It's a crazy scoreline. It was just a fantastic uh, display of football by Atletico Madrid in there. And you would say that they were coming off really good form, but there are there, there is, again, as I said, a different context for these two teams. Of course, Simone Inzaghi and Inter are doing really well. And it's, this is completely different to Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid right now are struggling to keep pace with Real Madrid and Girona. Of course, Girona have fallen off. The defeat against Real Madrid did not help. And then again, this weekend, they lost to Athletic Club de Bilbao at the San Mames. So there's some sort of, uh, there, there's some sort of discomfort right now with, with Girona. But... They are in the race for top four right now, Atletico Madrid, with the likes of Atletico Club de Bilbao and also with Barcelona. On the other hand, if you look at Inter, the victory is just another feather in the cap of Simone Inzaghi and this amazing team that Inter are. They are now 10 points clear of Juventus at the top of the Serie A summit. So this is just an incredible season that that Inter have had it, on the back of the season that they had last year in the Champions League. And also winning the the Coppa Italia, and I think they also won the Super Coppa, which again they have won it for three years in a row. So that's that's a fantastic achievement. Again, um, now as I said, the two contexts have been separated. You come into this game, and Atletico Madrid this season have surprisingly been a bit more offensive. They've not been completely offensive. That's completely going against their nature and against the player traits. But I thought the season, to a certain extent, Atletico Madrid was a bit conservative. They were playing some 
decent offensive football, not completely going against their nature, which has to a certain extent helped the productivity of Alvaro Morata and also Antoine Griezmann for the last entire calendar year was the best player in Spain. There, there, there are no two ways about that. He was the best player in Spain by a, by a significant margin, in my opinion. Um, at, at least we, we should say he was the best offensive player in, in the entire country. Um, if you look at where Inter were coming from, they, they had a set system. Simone Inzaghi had his complete impression on this team. There is... There is not one player in that starting eleven who does not play for the manager, who does not give it all for the manager in the in the time that he is on the pitch. And again, in many ways, I thought Simone Inzaghi did not respect this competition in the group stage. I thought they played really well. They were they were very good in some of the games. They came back in against Benfica, I guess, where they made a wholesale number of changes in the uh, uh, to start with, and then. They were 3-0 down in the first half. Then they came back to draw 3-3. It's a crazy game like this. I think the the main principle of Simone Inzaghi has somewhat hampered him in in terms of his uh, his position right now in the Champions League because he could have been playing somebody else if he would have played his cards right. But you, you look at it now and the team who finished first are playing Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, that's, that's really not where you want to be again. But... Um, it is what it is. You you look at how Inter have been playing, and that's a that that's a commendable job that uh, Simone Inzaghi has been doing. And you know, props to him. And kudos to entire Inter squad. So let's get into the game. Uh, this was a game where an Atletico Madrid were missing one of the biggest threats in front of goal, and that's Alvaro Morata. He's been in fine form uh, this season. Somehow he has not found his usual self, which will in turn miss. A lot of chances and also will be will be offside on a number of occasions. And you look at it, Alvaro Morata has had a lot of good returns this season for the service that he's had. I, they were playing Marcos Llorente, who obviously uh, played and started against Las Palmas at the weekend and also scored two goals. Then there is uh, Antoine Griezmann, who did not play against Las Palmas. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he was rested. He was well rested for this game. Uh, at the San Siro. On the other hand, with Inter, they were playing the usual lineup. Just a minor change in there. That was Matteo Darmian who came in for Denzel Dumfries, which was a bit surprising for me. But yeah, it is what it is. Um, let me come to the game. I think the first 10-15 minutes, especially the first 10 minutes, I thought Atletico Madrid started really well. I thought they were on the front foot. They pressed really well in that 5-4-1 structure where Griezmann was the one uh, solely playing around Shalanoglu and Stefan de Vrij. There was not much of service therein, but I thought he was the only sole person standing up top. It was a five-man back line, wherein Axel Witzel could not handle the pace of uh, Marcus Thuram, and we will get back to that. Uh, but then there was uh, there was the midfield for, of Rodrigo de Paul, Coque, uh, Llorente and uh, Saul Niguez. Of course, Llorente on paper started alongside Griezmann, but he was actually dropping down in the midfield and helping out uh, his midfield his midfield partners to actually make it a numerical superiority in the middle of the park against uh, park against Mkhitaryan, Chalanoglu, and uh, Nicola Barella. Uh, I think the setup worked really well. They pressed Inter pretty well. The press was very effective in the first 10-15 minutes. You also had that one sniff at goal which Samuel Nilo Lino had. He tried his luck. It was not not very far away from uh, uh, from the far post, uh, and I, I'm sure if it was on target, Jan Sommer would have had it covered anyways. But that was about it in the first half for Atletico Madrid, and then after the initial thrust, or maybe just a little bit of a thrust from 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 Atletico against their nature. I think Inter grew very much into the game. I thought the role of Shalanoglu was very much prominent as the game moved on because he got a lot of the ball. I don't think particularly Shalanoglu had a very good game because whenever he has a very good game, I think the dictation of play from Inter is very much subtle. It is very much, uh, not subtle, but it is very much uh, thorough. I think that's the right word. It is very much thorough in terms of what they want to do. The impression of what Simone Inzaghi actually wants to do comes from 
the brilliance on the ball from Hakan Shalonoglu and the way he is dictating the play. This was, in my opinion, a straight-out switch onto the other side, from one side to the other, and the positional sense of Shalonoglu. As the game moved on, that dictated the tempo of the game, rather than him being the one orchestrating it through the midfield, which is actually the general way in which Inter have played this season. Um, yeah, of course, there was uh, that... Uh, uh, that the fact that they were actually growing into the game, I thought Mkhitaryan played really well. Uh, it's it, it's 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 a another as as I, I would say, it's actually a testament to his work rate and his. It's 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 actually very much credible that he is right now playing for a club like Inter in the Champions League at this age after all the uh, all, all 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 the things that he had to go through uh, in in England with Arsenal and with uh, Manchester United. He's, he's found himself a place wherein he feels a lot more comfortable and he works really hard for this either side. In my opinion, the man of the match or the best player on the pitch this, uh, in this game was, was easily Nicola Barella, who was simply outstanding. Again, he has proved to me that he is a very, very important player, not just for, not just for Simone Inzaghi, but also for Luciano Spalletti if he wants to do well at the Euros. And... Time and again, he shows that he is a massive big game player. There is no two ways about that. He always turns up for the big games and there is that sense of inevitability with him that he will always show, he will always try that, that little bit harder. And he, he is, again, an elite level midfielder that they've got on their hands. Again, maybe they'll lose him for, for next season because of, uh, because of the club being in danger of being insolvent next season. So, who knows what would happen with the Inter. But, as I said, uh, Barella was just outstanding in this game from the midfield. The first chance comes for Inter. The first big chance comes for Inter through a Martinez header, which was crossed in by Nicola Barella, if I'm not wrong. And then the genuine chance of this game comes in for, again, for Lautaro Martinez, wherein... He is he is in a prime position to have a crack at goal, but he fluffs his line. And in that sequence of play, you look at it, Rodrigo de Paul loses that ball. And then there is Marcus Turan who's running at Axel Witzel, which is not a good matchup. Marcus Turan has has invoked terror in the hearts of opposition defenses this season in the Serie A. And you cannot imagine what a diamond they've they've had their hands on Inter. Because Marcus Turan, I mean, he is an amazing free signing that they have pulled off. And him and Lautaro Martinez have been, they have been unstoppable this season. The combination, the understanding and everything is just growing into what has been a successful transfer and successful season for Inter. And as I said, Marcus Turan is up against Axel Witzel and Rodrigo de Paul does not even bother to go back and help out his t- teammates. Now, I know that a lot of people love Rodrigo de Paul. I mean, if you're an Atletico fan, you might love Rodrigo de Paul. And also, if you are an Ar- if, if you support Argentina, of course, there is a lot to love about Rodrigo de Paul and what he represents there. But really, I, I, I do not rate him on his football skills. I, I don't think he has the IQ to actually play for a club as big as Atletico Madrid. He does not have the full the football arsenal, the football acumen that that is needed to play at this level. I again, it's it's not because of what he did on in that particular sequence of play, but I just think that he is inept of doing a certain amount of thing, uh, a certain amount of things right on, on at 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 the at given point in time. So yeah, th- there is that there is that possibility of it being at. Uh, there is that possibility of him being at at that same spot which Axel Witzel was, and he should have actually helped him out, but he did not, and that was I, I thought that was just disturbing for me to watch because Axel Witzel again, I'm 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 sorry, Axel Witzel, what is he doing in a Champions League game playing in a back three for Atletico Madrid? I don't know. He I know he's very good on the ball, but Atletico Madrid have to do better than this. I thought uh, the the one thing I should highlight in the first half. The crossing and the final ball uh, in from both the both the set of teams was just awful. Whether it's whether it's uh, Fede Di Marco, Matteo Darmian, or Barella on the uh, who is crossing the ball for Inter, or whether it's Hermoso, Samuelino, or the lack of crossing from uh, from Nahuel Molina, who was very disappointing throughout the game for me. It it was just staggering the the amount of uh, the amount of 
awful balls ever played into the box in the first half. It's just just really awful. It was what it is. It was nil nil in the first half, and then you know Marcus Turan got injured. Then came in, uh, of course. Then came in. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Marco Arnautovic, of course, who scored the goal as well. And then Inter, I thought, were the better side, comfortably the better side in the second half. Arnautovic on a on another day would have had a hat trick to his name, but it was just not there to be. And yeah, he scored. He scored the goal, which has made the difference at least for the first leg. They will take this advantage to the next uh, leg in the Civitas Metropolitano. So that will be interesting. I think there is a sense of calmness around Atletico Madrid in spite of the 1-0 defeat that they have right now at at the San Siro. But uh, again, you know, you, you never know when the tide turns around for you. Um, as far as Inter go, they have the advantage, but it could have been much better. It really could have been much better. I thought the performances also from the subs, and this is one thing, again, that needs to be highlighted. The rotations of Simone Inzaghi, again, are very much planned. They have, they're somewhat computerized in his, in, in his brains that he knows how to use his resources really well. There are five subs, and he is going to use all five. He's not going to mess around and just... Just, just complain about some of the Premier League managers saying that it, it makes some teams better, it makes some teams worse. But I think the way he uses his resources is just fantastic to watch. You look at the way, you look at Stefan de Vrij and if he would not be playing very um, very regularly for, for Inter, and that is because of the minutes that he gets because of the rotations, he would not have been integrated so easily into this team given the fact that Francesco Acerbi is now currently injured and may be back for the second leg in Milan. So there, there is a lot to this. And again, the rotations have been a part of the entire, this entire, what do you say, this entire route of results and the way they have played. Rotations are a big part of it and they've contributed in some really nice ways for, for Simone Inzaghi. As for Atletico Madrid, I think, there is optimism. There is that second leg in the semi-finals for, um, for them to not not in the semi-finals, but the round of sixteen to look forward to. All's not lost. You, you, it's 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 completely clear for me. It's it's nothing lost for for Atletico Madrid. They will be fine. I think so. If they play their cards right, Morata will be back for the second leg from the start. So that will be interesting. Inter. I still think Inter will nick a goal. I think Inter have it in them to actually nick a goal at the Metropolitano. The one thing that really stands out statistically in Atletico's fla- in Atletico's favor is that um, Inter uh, that the Atletico have not lost yet at home. The only team that has beaten Real Madrid this season have been Atletico Madrid, and that has been at the Metropolitano. So who knows? I mean, this. I mean, f- even again for for Inter. They do not have to beat Atletico to actually go into the next round. A draw is enough. So, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of narratives here. Again, again, this is not a sprint. This is going to be a marathon over 180 minutes, and this will be decided at the Metropolitan. This can easily go on to extra time, and this could also result in penalties. I won't be surprised if this comes out to some fights around, and things get a bit ugly. There will be red cards or something like that. I don't care. I just want to have a very, very good watch for the second leg. And I'm damn sure that this is going to be one of the most intriguing second legs that you will ever see. I'm very much looking forward to this one. I still think right now I would give it Inter 1 Atletico 1 after the end of the 90 minutes at uh, at the Metropolitano. Inter win by two goals to one to get to the next round on aggregate scoreline. So now let's move on from one iconic Italian city to another iconic Italian city as Naples saw Napoli taking on Barcelona in another Champions League round of 16 tie. This one ended in a one-all draw between the two sides. But before diving into this game, let's take a look at what's happened before the game in Naples with their managerial situation, which is again orchestrated by the infamous Olerio Di Laurentiis, who is the president of Napoli. So uh, Aurelio Di Laurentiis sacked their manager, Walter Mazzari, just days or two days before uh, Napoli's game against Barcelona, after the, the game in the Serie A this weekend. And he has appointed uh, Francesco Calzona, who happens to be also the head coach 
of Slovakia. And interestingly, Slovakia have given the green light for Calzona to actually manage Napoli and Slovakia at the same time. And why wouldn't they? Because Slovakia are going to be playing in the European Championship Finals. They have qualified for the Euros alongside Portugal in that same group. So it's, it's a feather in the cap. It's a commendable job that he's done there. Kudos to him. All great there. But yeah, he is going to manage Napoli and he is a familiar figure in Napoli. He was uh, the assistant coach of uh, Maurizio Sarri for a number of years. I, I think it, it was for 10 years that he was the head coach. He was the assistant coach under Maurizio Sarri and then he moved on to Cagliari after Sarri ended his stint at Napoli in 2018. He, uh, they both parted ways and Calzona went to Cagliari where he worked under um, Di Francesco who happens to be the one who managed Roma when Roma did the remontada at the Stadio Olimpico against Barcelona back in 2018. So Di Francesco at that time, in 20, uh, after his work in, uh, in, in, in Roma, after he, was, uh, after he was sacked as a Roma manager, he went on to manage Cagliari and then uh, Francesco Calzona was also the manager there. And after that, he went on to become the technical manager at uh, Napoli under, uh, under Luciano Spalletti, which was a very successful job. And then he moved on to manage Slovakia after uh, Spalletti left. I think he was there until 2022. He was not there to see the season and where they won the, won the Serie A title. He went on to manage Slovakia. They're doing really well right now. And he has got good connections with... Well, with, with the Napoli people because of his time there. And of course, there's also Stanislav Lobotka, who is his player even on international duty. So there is a lot of connections in there. But the fact that you're actually sacking a manager two days before a Champions League game is absolutely nuts. Nuts. I, I mean, th there is no explanation to this. This is one of those stupid decisions that uh, Aurelio Di Laurentiis has taken over his course as the Napoli president. I know he loves the club and stuff like that, but really, he, he sometimes drives me so mad. There is, th there is that self-realization or the confession that he made towards the press conference in public that Rudy Garcia was actually a mistake to be hired in as, uh, as a Napoli manager. The fact that he was not courteous towards uh, Luciano Spalletti the, with, with his contract talks and whatnot, it's, it just has been a complete and utter mess under Aurelio Di Rolentis for the last eight, nine months. And, and, and Napoli are really reaping the fruits of that. And I just hope that it works out under, uh, under Francesco Calzona. I do not know. The future holds for the manager and the club, or should I say, the marriage between uh, Calzona and Napoli for now? Because, of course, after the after the Euros, he will have to make a decision whether to stay the manager of Napoli or whether he wants to uh, have his experience with Slovakia and see if they can go to the World Cup as well. But that's that's for later. But this one in this game, uh, Calzona came in with just one training session, and that happened on on Tuesday morning. And it's it's not ideal, so you might experience that there is a sense of uh, lack of preparation from Napoli, and that was evident in the game. I thought, I thought Barcelona kept possession. I think Barcelona played really well. Napoli were disgraceful, but there are reasons because, and I, I might give them a pass because all the all this circus that is going around behind the scenes at Napoli and. There, there is no one to blame, not, neither the players nor the coach. Uh, it, the one who is to blame is someone sitting at the top, and that is, we all know who it is. So, um, as I said, this game was, this game was, again, very boring, to be honest. I, I had Porto against Arsenal, I really enjoyed that game. But this was just downright boring, to be honest. And uh, I thought, I thought Arsenal, or not Arsenal, but uh, I thought Barcelona played really well. Uh, they were coming off a very good result at the weekend in La Liga, uh, but where they played with real good momentum gathering from that game. I think the game on the previous weekend against Granada was just poor. There, there was just nothing in that game. But this one, I thought they played really well. I think they kept, kept the ball pretty well. They rotated the ball pretty well. The circulation of the ball was very good. They are trying this experiment of having uh, Andres Christensen in the midfield. It is working out to a certain extent right now, but 
Who's to say it is going to work out always? They had this uh, this same setup even against Celta de Vigo at the weekend. And there was a phase of play wherein Celta were pretty comfortable. But somehow they, they lost control of the game. There was that stupid penalty of, um, of Laminia Mal at the very death and Robert Lewandowski who's been playing really well in these last couple of weeks I would say it's it's starting to turn for him and Barcelona have been playing really well so uh, in turn the, the results have been much better the football still really is pretty awful at many times and they've actually for the majority of the season have relied on a 16 year old to bail them out offensively so they're not really optimistic signs for if you're a Barcelona fan to look forward to. But as I said in this game, I thought for the first 60-70 minutes, Barcelona were very much into it. They played really well. They played with decent tempo, but there was just nothing going forward. I thought Lewandowski could not get into the game. There was one sequence of play wherein Gundogan gets the ball in 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 a very... Um, in a very large amount of space, where he, where he could not control it pretty well. The ball was slightly behind him. And again, there, are, there was just nothing in this game in the first half. They kept the ball really well. Barcelona had just no purpose going forward. Napoli were disgraceful. They had just nothing. They had absolutely nothing, no purpose with the ball at their feet. They were just looking clueless. The one thing I would say so is Napoli defended pretty well in the first half. I thought Juan Jesus is someone who does not need to play for Napoli right now. They should look forward. They, I, I do not care how poor Leo Ostigard is. You at least need to give him some chances at the biggest level. Because Rahmani is a very good player. Juan Jesus, I have got no confidence in him. I mean, I would even see Nathan play there. I think he, he was he was very good in the first few games that uh, Walter Mazzari was in charge in that back three system. So why not play him? He's a left-footed centre-back. You you could use him pretty well. I think I would like to see that. Juan Jesus does not fill me with confidence. Although he played decent in this game, he should not be playing for Napoli. I just do not have any confidence in Juan Jesus. I've I've seen a lot of Juan Jesus. Not really a big fan of his. Um, as I said, I was as I was saying, I thought they defended pretty well. There was there were chances for Barcelona. They could not take it. That one chance that I could remember where Pedri squares it off to Lewandowski and there's a good save made by Meret. There was another save made by Meret on, uh, on, on I think it was Lamine Mal who cuts on his left and tries to uh, tries his luck against uh, against Alex Meret, but he, could, he saved it pretty well. Apart from that, it was just nothing. Uh, in the second half, the game grew in. I thought Barcelona carried on the momentum and then got their goal, which was just reward for what they did. It was a great pass from Pedri, nutmegging. I think it was Zombo Anguisa. The ball goes in and then Lewandowski with a brilliant finish. I think it was a very, very good, very well taken goal by uh, Robert Lewandowski. Um, his 90, 93rd Champions League goal of his career. That's, that's just some ridiculous amount of goals that he scored. Um, but yeah, it's, I think he's third or fourth in the list. I think he's third in the list of all-time leading goal scorers in the Champions League. But yeah, as I said... Great job by Lewandowski uh, to get it 1-0. And then some stupid thing that Inigo Martinez does. I mean, there is no explanation as to why he does that and what he was doing. But he did that. He slipped. Or whether it was a foul. I don't think it was a foul. There's just no chance that that's been given as a foul. It was the final touch of the game for uh, for Victor Osimen, And he scored. Uh, on that touch, it was 1-1 and after that, I thought Napoli picked up really well. There was some purpose on their game uh, and that was after the 70th minute. They were the most likely team to get the second goal and take the advantage back to the Montjuic for the second leg. Again, I, I, th I thought they were just awful in the first half. It really were. Napoli, but they, they really picked it up. I, I think all is not lost for Napoli. As I said on Twitter as well, Nothing's lost for Napoli. They have it in their hands to qualify for the Champions League round of uh, Champions League quarterfinals for the second year in a row, in spite of having a terrible, terrible season. And if you ask me, then this is going to be the big ticket match for guys like Quaratskhelia and Osimen, because you will have eyebrows when you're playing in Barcelona. There will be a lot of eyebrows when you're playing in Barcelona, and that too against Barcelona. So there will be a chance to show to the world to actually show everyone how good you are as a player. Quaratskela did not have any service and, and 
the same case has to be repeated also for Victor Osimen. But uh, as I said, this is going to be the you have to take this game by the scruff of the neck. This is a chance to shine if you are Parake, if you are Victor Osimen, because it's 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 really going to be a massive chance to actually get a big move next season. So if you have it in yourself, if you're not just a one-season wonder, just show it. Just show it for everyone. And I, I, I've got a lot of confidence in Quaratskele, but he's not had a good season this time around. I have got, I've got immense love for Victor Osimhen, and, and I hope he signs for Real Madrid uh, over Kylian Mbappe because, I mean, I know that Kylian Mbappe is going to sign for us, but if there is some, even the slightest amount of hope, I would, ha- I would love to have Osimhen in our side ahead of Mbappe. But yeah, it is what it is. I think uh, there will be a lot of eyebrows. Teams like Granada and Villarreal have hit three and five goals respectively, coming at the uh, coming at the Montjuic. Girona have hit them for four. There are a lot of teams that have come to the Montjuic and have have had very very good games. Even Celta de Vigo in the first game could have scored three or four. They could not. They could not finish the chances. Alaves could have scored so many goals there. Porto would have scored so many goals. There were so many games wherein teams have missed chances coming at Barcelona. But you know what? This this could be interesting. I, I'm I'm pretty sure about that. But I would still say it is in Barcelona. The ball is in Barcelona's court after the first leg. They will feel very very content with uh, the result, not particularly with the performance. They've. Uh, I'm pretty sure if they if they get hit first in the in the second leg, this game could turn very ugly for them. And it could really scatter themselves, uh, and it it could really scatter them o- over the next ninety minutes. But anyways, I think this is going to be an interesting one. This was awful, but I am optimistic that the second leg will be much better. There is optimism for Napoli. I give a, a there, there will be some time on the training field right now for uh, for San, uh, for Francesco Calzona. He needs to actually at least try for a European spot because the Champions League is a far-fetched dream right now for next season if you're a Napoli supporter. But definitely you could try for another for another European spot if you can get it because if, if you're Francesco Calzona, there is a lot to achieve this season if, if, you, if you play your cards right. And if you talk about the second leg, I would give them a healthy chance. If, if they hit first, I think they will have a good chance of going through. This could easily again go to extra time. I I personally don't see Napoli winning the game in 90 minutes. This could go in extra time, but I'm 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 pretty sure this would this would be a disappointment. I'm going 2-0 to Barcelona and then them to win it 3-1. I just look like I'm just contradicting myself here, but that's what I think. That's what my gut feeling says. So now let's move on from Italy and enter the Dragao, which was treated to a buzzer-beating World Day from Venderson Galeno in the 94th minute, which saw Porto beat Arsenal by a goal to nil and take the advantage now to the Emirates for the second leg. This was a fantastic game, to be honest, in my opinion. I know there were stoppages, I know there was everything, but I just love to see Porto winning against Arsenal because there was a lot of disrespect towards Porto and they were not given a chance that was so surprising given the fact that some of the players that have so much experience they've pound for pound a better goalkeeper an experienced defensive line and also of course they have uh, Sergio Concisao who's a much more experienced manager in Champions League games than Mikel Arteta of course there is a lot to uh, there, there is a lot to dissect from this game but I, I, I just love the fact that Porto have beaten Arsenal I just just absolutely love the the meltdown from the English media that they were trying to say that Porto were playing anti-football, this, that or the other. They're entitled to play the way they want to play. There is absolutely nothing anyone can do to what Porto are trying to play. And they had some injuries in their team as well. They're, they do not have Cardoso. They, they do not have... Uh, uh, they, do, they did not have Sanusi. They did not have Taremi. There were so many injuries in that team, but still they found a way to cope up with them and beat Arsenal. Arsenal not an easy team to play, even uh, at home, even at the Dragao with the atmosphere that was so behind them. And to be honest, Sergio Contessao outcoached and outthought Mikel Arteta over the 90 minutes in this game. I really li- like the fact that Porto managed to play within their own limitations, but they actually forced Arsenal to play. They wanted the game to be played. And I think 
the naivety in which with Arsenal and Mikel Arteta or with the overconfidence or the arrogance and the naivety, I think both have equal measures of uh, uh, equal measure of actually contribution towards the downside of what Arsenal had to achieve in this game. I thought the naivety with which they went in with just one holding midfielder, played a back four, which was very placid, and then that front three, which had lack of goals in there, written all over it. I thought they were just not up for the races in there. You look at across the pitch, I thought uh, Porto just had better players in the midfield, in the defence, in the attack. I thought the way the flanks were attacked by Porto with Galeno and with uh, uh, Francesco Conceição was very much good to see. You look at the midfield, which was working so very hard. I thought Alan Varela was easily the player of the match for me. Uh, Alan Varela, I thought Nico Gonzalez put in a very good shift. So did uh, Pep. And then you have the two fullbacks as well. I thought João Mario played really well. So did uh, Wendell on the left-hand side who had to be taken off because he could not continue anymore. That was the amount of... Uh, that, that, was, that, was the, that was the shift that he put in. And I, I thought it was just a fantastic performance by everyone involved in that Porto side. As for Arsenal, I thought the fact that it was just... A lack of experience, the naivety that I was talking about. The way they went to the game with a setup that was not really going to work against a sturdy opposition like Porto. And yet, again, I, I tweeted this out on Twitter as well. Or X, whatever you want, want to call it. Just don't bother me again with this. But um, I tweeted this out that um, the way Arsenal really play it's not going to crack open Porto that easily. And people were going like 3-0, fall, and it's, it's in Porto, it's, it's in Arsenal's hand and stuff like that. But the thing is that you need a bit of nous to actually beat a sturdy opposition like Porto. I'll talk about Sergio Conceição in a bit because there is a lot to like about Sergio Conceição as, as much as he's grumpy, as much as he, he might be deceitful towards some of the people around, even from his own team... He is an elite manager. And I'll come to Sergio Conceição, but let's get into the game. I thought the first half, again, I thought Arsenal were awful. Porto really played well. And it it was a narrative which was coming out from outside that Porto are just passengers in this entire game and Arsenal are going to make light work of them. It was not it was not to be. I thought in the midfield of Porto played really well. They allowed Arsenal to have the ball, but there were stoppages in play. There were some little niggly fouls here and there, which allowed game, which allowed the momentum to be broken every single time Arsenal had the ball. And that was the plan from Sergio Conceição. And I think that worked really well with uh, Francesco Conceição inter- at times coming into the midfield and actually making it a four against the against the three of, or against the four of Arsenal, when in habits was actually coming down deep to receive the ball. I thought uh, the way Alan Varela played this entire game was just amazing. He's been a very good signing from Boca Juniors uh, in, in the summer. He, he has played really well in, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the Portuguese league. The, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of good things that you would want to look forward to with Alan Varela in his career forward. Nico Gonzalez the same. He, he is... Some some sort of an answer to Barcelona's number six problems. I think he could do really well uh, if he returns back to Barcelona and if they want to take him. I think he's done pretty well uh, for uh, Sergio Conceição. It's not really easy to play in the way that Conceição plays, and then there is the other spectrum of uh, of a footballing uh, of a footballing rainbow, which is uh, Barcelona, which play possession based and hard work football. Not not hard work, but possession based, high tempo football. Um, and then there is uh, this uh, this entire setup from Arsenal, wherein they play Havertz, which worked in there. They did not play Jorginho, which was which, which was a bit which was a bit surprising to me, given the fact that he has experiences uh, at this very stadium as well against his opposition, and also in general experience of playing in knockout competitions with Chelsea and also with Italy. Um, again, I I thought that this was a Disaster class from Arteta and his players. I think the collective has to take the blame. It's not just towards Arteta or just towards the players. I think both were equally awful. I think I think the manager and his plan and his tactics were not that great. It was some sort of a complacency uh, attached to that arrogance with, 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 with which they went into this game. And it was just not good to see. 
given the fact that English media were not taking Sergio Conceição very seriously. It's it's just not it was not a good look. But then came the second half. Arsenal did have some sort of uh, a uh, what do you say? There was some sort of a injection of uh, of of emergency or whatever you call it. I I can't remember the name, but there was some sort of impetus given to forward passing. The, the, there was much purposeful in there. He made some changes into the team, and it it looked a pretty pretty solid in the second half. But then again, Porto grew into the game, and then that final and that final goal from. Uh, from Galeno, which is amazing to to watch. Galeno, by the way, missed a very very big chance uh, at the very start of the game as well. There he had that massive chance. He hit the post, and then the rebound was put wide. I don't know how that was not one 0 but as I said in the first half, it was it was completely Porto's game. I thought Porto played really well in the first half. The second half, you might just give Arsenal a bit of credit, but then again, Porto grew into the game as the game moved on because there was some sort of uh, acceptance from Porto that. To have a chance to get into the next round, they have to make the most of this home leg. And they've made it. They have an advantage. It is slender lead. It is just a 1-0 lead and it can be easily overturned if Arsenal have a very good game at the Emirates. But they give themselves a chance. They give themselves a chance to play the way they want to play at the Emirates. And that is very, very important given the context of this tie. Now with Arsenal, given the fact that Liverpool and Man City have both won in this midweek in the Premier League... That would mean that they have to win. Even they have to keep pace with them. The one thing is that they are out of cup competitions, so that's a breathing space for them. But with the Champions League coming up at the same time, there will be a very big game against uh, against. I don't know who it is. There will be a game in the Premier League as well simultaneously. You have to cope up with that pressure. The last four teams that have knocked Arsenal out of the. Of, of Europe, not not the last th- four, but the last three have been Olympiacos, Villarreal and Sporting Lisbon. They're not three teams uh, who are who's supposed to be knocking Arsenal out. I mean, Villarreal was a different thing under Unai Emery when they won the Europa League. Then there is uh, Olympiacos, wherein they won the first leg, but in the second leg it was a meltdown in Greece. And in the other one, it was, it, it was a wonderful goal by Pedro Goncalves, in the second leg at the Emirates itself. So, if you might remember, this was under Ruben Amorim when Sporting eventually lost out to Juventus in the next round. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think I think there will be there there will be some sort of a fatigue in terms of the fixtures, but they have to cope with them. They have got a decent squad. The amount of goals that the front line has is a bit of a concern. We saw that that could be a problem even at home. We saw it in the FA Cup when they were knocked out by Liverpool. Um, where there were just there were just no goals, and whenever they had the um, whenever they had those chances, that there's a lack of goals in that front line, even more so when they have Havertz and Gabriel Jesus has never been a sort of a goal scorer, even when he was at City. So there there is a bit of a problem there. Um, I would say there is there is a lot to look forward to in the second leg. I will be having this uh, this game uh, glued to my eyeballs in the second leg. It's it's not getting away from it. Uh, it's just going to be interesting to see how this works out between these two sides. It, it will be intriguing. It really is intriguing. And I'm very much looking forward to the second leg at the Emirates. Uh, talking about Sergio Conceição, I think um, people really sleep on him. I think he's he is the best manager right now in Portugal. I know he is not having a good time at uh, in the league this season. But yeah, there is everything's not lost for him as well. Um I can still engineer this team into the Champions League for next season. There is complete hope for that. They lost last weekend in the league, I guess so. There is turmoil behind the scenes with the presidential elections and whatnot. There has been lack of investment in this squad. For the amount of work that Sergio Conceição has done, there has been definitely a lack of investment in the squad. This is probably the less talented Porto squad that I've seen in the last eight or nine years. And the fact that he is still managing to get results out of this uh, out of this team is just incredible to incredible if you ask me. And it's not like he has been uh, doing this all of a sudden. He has been linked to a number of Italian clubs over the years. He's not taken up a job. I think he was waiting for the Inter job to be available to him. 
because that really was a lucrative job offer, but then Simone Inzaghi came in, and there is no sign that Simone Inzaghi will be stepping down sooner rather than later from the Inter job, but he has stuck with Porto, and this club means a lot to him. It, it, it is evident from his body language and what he resembles for the club. He loves this club very much, and there is an identity very much inclined to the personality of uh, Sergio Conceição and his club and it's not like they are all they're, they're very much uh, towards the uh, towards uh, towards playing like Atletico Madrid it's it's not like that Porto plays some attacking football as well if you look at the game against Inter the two games against Inter last year they really played well in those two games and somehow they could not win but yeah they played really well you if you look at some of the games that in the Champions League that he's played it's it's been fantastic. It, of course, you look at last year as well. He outthought guys like uh, Diego Simeone and Simone Inzaghi this year as well. He played Porto played really well against teams like Barcelona. And as I said, the lack of talent in the squad is hurting him. There is no optimism for for this season in the league. That's for sure because Ruben Amorim and Sporting have run away with it. If there is some optimism, that is going to be with Benfica, and if they can catch them. I think there is very less chance of that happening as well because they've had a topsy-turvy season uh, for the majority of the part. That is Benfica. Um, Sporting look really good. They, I think they, they look much better than some of the top five teams around. Top, it's some of the big teams right now in the top five leagues in Europe. That's how good they've been. But yeah, I, th- I think there is a lot to look forward to. I think Sergio Conceição, the man that he is, uh, the amount of... The amount of admiration that he deserves, he is not getting that. And this is someone, as I said, who's got la- who was who was hit by stones on his car whilst his family, whilst his children and his wife was in the car with him last year after that loss to Club Brugge at the Dragao. That was the state of his uh, his relationship with the fans at that time uh, at Porto. They, they were, they were do- doing awful in the league as well, and even in the Champions League, the graph was going drastically down. But the fact that he's turned, he he turned the tables over. He he is a sort of a manager who takes Porto every single time, at least to the round of sixteen of the Champions League. I think they missed out once, wherein they were the group of death alongside um, Atletico Madrid and Liverpool and Milan. I guess I think that was the that that was the uh, season where they lost it. They've they've lost some very key players to their squad. They've lost uh, the likes of. Uh, um, I think they've lost Chancellor Mbemba in from the squad. They've lost Vitinha. They've lost very good players. I mean, they've lost Luis Diaz. They've lost Fabio Vieira. They've lost Stefan. Uh, they've lost uh, not Stefan Stag. They've lost Matheus Uribe. So many players have, have have gone away from the squad that he inherited, and they're still going strong. And I think there there has to be some amount of admiration, and not just for him, but also for my boy Pepe. Well, not my boy. He's turned out to be a man now. He's. He's 41 years of age uh, when he will come back for the second leg. What a story that is. He's 41 years of age. He's still going strong. He's still the best defender on the pitch when he plays. The amount of uh, tranquility that he brings around the team is just incredible. I mean, yeah, there is a lot to look forward for him as well. Whether he will be playing for Portugal in the in the Euros, it's 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 yet to be confirmed. But I hope he does because it's he, it's just an amazing story with Pep and... Again, I, I love the man to bits, and there is a lot of, uh, and, and I and I and I feel really happy about it that people are actually admiring the greatness of of Pep, and he has been one of the top five defenders in Europe of the last generation, alongside the likes of Thiago Silva, uh, and even uh, the likes of Thiago Silva. You can add in Sergio Ramos and all these other guys. Um, he he has been uh, in in the midst of all these people and yeah it's uh, it's it's fantastic it's it's really remarkable the achievement that he is getting right now he's still playing at a high level he's he's going to be playing in the Champions League round of sixteen for God's sakes that takes a lot and yeah brilliant I mean salute to that man I I just love him to bits you look at the words that Rio Ferdinand had for him I mean. He still is that strong. He is still has that now. And the fact that Otavio has come in from Family Cow and he really seems to be a very good fit alongside Pep right now, more more so than the likes of Cardoso or even David Carmo, who has who has felt the wrath of um, of of Sergio Conceição. But anyways, um, 
I think there is a lot to look forward to in the second leg between these two teams. Uh, I think Porto, this goal gives Porto a massive, massive chance to be there. And have I given flowers to Galena for that goal? I think you should. Uh, I think I should. As as bad as the miss was for uh, in the first half, the goal was fantastic. Uh, it was a wonderful goal. You could obviously blame Raya for it, of course, but who knows? And again, a massive shout out to Diogo Costa. Again, showed everyone why he is one of the best goalkeepers right now. In, uh, in in Europe, even in the Champions League, he's one of the best goalkeepers around, uh, going around, and he just shows it every now and then. The way he commands his area, the way he is sure while he's passing the ball out from the back is just amazing. Um, but yeah, as I said, there is a lot to look forward to in this game, and the goal from Galeno gives them a chance to actually play the way they want to play and to dictate the way they want to play in the Emirates. Um, I still back Porto. I said that they will lose. This game, uh, that Arsenal will lose the game at the Dragao. But it's anybody's guess. I'm going for a one-all draw. I think Porto nick a goal, especially if Taremi is back for the second leg in the Emirates. So there was a small matter of PSV Eindhoven taking on Borussia Dortmund in the Philips Stadion in Eindhoven, Netherlands. This game ended in a one-all draw between the two sides. I thought PSV Eindhoven were the better side. But then again, uh, Borussia Dortmund with the experience navigated through this game and they have a one-all draw to take to uh, the uh, Westfalen Stadio at, uh, in, in three weeks' time for the second leg. And I think this is a very, very big result. But again, I think uh, for PSV Eindhoven, if they can play their cards right, if they can tactically muster in this good result, it, it could be a very memorable night for Peter Bosch. And we all know what happened with Peter Bosch at, when he was at Borussia Dortmund. So there is... A lot to be won for Peter Bosch when he goes back to the Signal Iduna Park in Germany. Um, but yeah, I thought this game was very much uh, well thought in by Edin Terzic. Uh, PSV Eindhoven should have won the game, in my opinion, given the chances that they've had. I thought the penalty was a disgrace. I, that never should be a penalty in a million years. Matt Somos was agitated after the game. He he clearly was not happy with the decision of the referee. But the good thing is that Dortmund did not lost it, did not lose their heads after that decision went against them, and uh, they actually played played pretty well even after that even after even after that decision. And uh, it was good to see. I think um, uh, PSV Eindhoven are having a good season. They're playing confidently. Uh, right now under Peter Bosch in the Eredivisie. They, they look primed up to win the league this season uh, from Feyenoord and I think I think they will do a good job there but uh, as far as the Champions League goes um, I think I think they have uh, they ha- this they, they've got a, it's a, it's a tall order for Borussia for, for PSV Eindhoven against Dor- against a team like Dortmund as for Dortmund they have all to play for in the in the next round they are in the midst of uh, a race for the top 4 because Stuttgart Leipzig and uh, Dortmund, they, they, it's, it's between these three teams for the two positions uh, for Champions League next season. So it will be interesting to see how they fare up uh, next season. But uh, as far as, as, far as um, the next leg goes, I'm still going for a... I'm going for a 2-2 draw. Let's see what happens. I, I'm going for a 2-2 draw and this game goes to extra time. And then something happens. I don't know what, but something does happen. And this this will be an interesting one. So, yeah, 2-2 two, two draw at the end of the 90 minutes. But, yeah, before going, um, yeah, shout out to the goal from Daniel Marlin. Did not celebrate after the goal that he scored. It was a very well-taken goal by Daniel Marlin, scoring uh, on his return back to the Philips Stadio, where he played for a number of years before making the switch to Dortmund. So, uh, a very emotional moment for him, I guess. Uh, I thought Max Tillman played really well for... Um, uh, for uh, for PSV Eindhoven, Dion led the line really well, took the penalty pretty well, uh, if you may ask. And uh, of course, there was that uh, um, there, there was a, that chance again for Max Tillman where he should have con- that they should have scored. Um, I thought uh, I thought there will be a massive uh, eyeballs over the performance of Johan Bakayoko when he plays at the Signal Iduna Park. Where this is going to be interesting, as I said, a two-two draw it makes sense. I think. This this will go down to the wire. I think for Dortmund they have to sort the defense out. Uh, for if if they don't want to be at the center of another collapse, uh, in, in on the center of a of a calamitous result, I, I'm pretty sure that they don't want that to happen. So let's see what happens. It's it's going to be pretty interesting to look forward to what happens in the second leg. But uh, yeah, uh, that's it from the Champions League uh, four games, and let's talk about 
what's happening across Europe as well. Uh, the big news is that Bayern Munich have decided to part ways with Thomas Tuchel. And this was coming. This was uh, pretty much coming since the, loss, uh, since the loss to Leverkusen. It was more so a guarantee after the loss to Lazio. And then it became pretty much inevitable that Thomas Tuchel was not going to be the manager for Bayern Munich uh, next season uh, after the loss to Bochum. So, yeah, it's, um, it's been a sorry story. It's been a story that I've really been interesting to, st- to study around. Of course, the treble was in danger when they sacked Julian Nagelsmann, which in many ways now looks like a very terrible decision by Brazzo and Oliver Kahn. But, yeah, it is, it is what it is right now. You live and die by, with your own decisions, and that's what they've got to do. Uh, they have got the massive game coming up at home against uh, RB Leipzig, a team which has had their number in the last two games. They beat um, uh, Bayern Munich, uh, RB Leipzig, that is, at home uh, at, at the Allianz Arena. So, and they also gave them a very, very good game at the regular arena in the first leg in the Bundesliga. They also beat them, I think they beat them twice at home in the Allianz Arena. One was in the league and the other one was in the Super Cup. And then in the Bundesliga this season, they were at home in the regular arena and they could not actually beat them, but they gave a very good game to them in the uh, in the Red Bull arena. But anyways, I think uh, this is what it is. Um, as for Bayern, I think they really should not be taking this long to fire him. They should have fired him straight away. There is talks about Arsene Wenger getting in the job if for an interim base or even people like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer have been linked to the job, which is, I think, is ridiculous. They're looking for... Stuttgart's manager, I've got no idea what his name is, but he's, he's he's managing them pretty well. I think they should have pulled the trigger straight away. They should have pulled the trigger straight away against uh, against Thomas Tuchel and they should have sacked him straight away because he's he's completely lost the dressing room. There There is no optimism left for him inside the dressing room. He's fallen out with players like Muller, like Kimmich, like De Ligt, even guys like Davies. And they all are actually, apart from... Thomas Muller, that everyone else is actually looking to get a move away from Bayern Munich in the summer. So that's so that's ominous signs for Bayern Munich in terms of what to do about their about their talent. And also not not just these players, also guys like Matthias Tell, who seems to be a very, very in, interesting player. He seems to be also not be interested in what Bayern are going to do next season, as he's also plotting a move to the Premier League. So it it looks very ominous for Bayern Munich. They should have pulled the trigger. I think that would have been the wise decision to make. They're not, and uh, they will be uh, having Thomas Tuchel on the bench even for the game against RB Leipzig, which I don't think is the right decision in many ways. Um, but yeah, that is what it is with uh, Bayern as far as Tuchel goes. Irrespective of what happens from now until the end of the season and regardless of what's happened uh, at Bayern since he's joined over 12 months ago, I still rate him highly as a manager and as a coach. He's done a fantastic job at Dortmund, at Mainz and at Paris Saint-Germain. The only manager to take Paris Saint-Germain to the Champions League final has been has been Thomas Tuchel. He won the Champions League with Chelsea the very next season. I know there is some sort of criticism with the style of play and stuff like that and he has been linked to two jobs very instantaneously and one of them has been Barcelona and the other one is the German national team job. Very appealing jobs, always. Uh, but uh, I would say for Thomas Tuchel and his side to actually consider if a team like Milan or Juventus come around knocking, I think they should transcend into that direction rather than going for, a, for, for glory again, going for Barcelona or for Germany national team, wherein there will be more eyeballs. I think... Even with Juventus and Milan, you get a lot of eyeballs, but that will be very much restricted around in Italy. And whenever you go out of Italy, you will have that sort of limelight, whether if you're Juventus, because they have got good players, they've got good young players, and the system really works. But I think Juventus could be such an such a brilliant fit for Thomas Tuchel. And I think Juventus, they need to get rid of Max Allegri. I, I mean, I've, I've been seeing Max Allegri for I don't know how long now at Juventus, uh, apart from those two seasons where Pirlo and Sarri took over, Max Allegri, it's like that he's been there forever. I mean, I, I, I think both of those parties, Allegri and Juventus, need need a change. They need to move on from each other. And I think if Thomas Tuchel can take that job, I think he is he, he could be the best option that they've had. I think people like even Ruben Amorim could take that job and make Juventus pretty good. But right now, I think uh, 
that is a team that I can put forward and I think that would be my choice if I'm Thomas Tuchel. If I can also look from a different perspective, I think if Diego Simeone walks off from Atletico Madrid, someone like a Thomas Tuchel can go and join Atletico Madrid and make it a very good squad as well. That's how good a coach he is and that's how I rate him. But yeah, that's it for Thomas Tuchel. In the Premier League, we had Man City beating Brentford. It was a hard watch again. It took them lots of minutes to get uh, to get Everton broken at the weekend. And uh, yeah, they it it was a sturdy resistant put it resistance put forward by by Brentford as well at the Emirates and it was courtesy of that slip from uh, Christoph Ayer that uh, his fellow countryman Erling Haaland was able to score the goal past Flecken. I think Flecken was brilliant and I don't understand as to why he's still not the Dutch number one in terms of when he plays in 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 in, in between the sticks. But anyways, um, there is that uh, there there is that. A narrative as well, wherein uh, Liverpool have got many injuries. They played against Luton Town at Anfield. On paper, this had to be a very easy game, but they they made it hard. It was 1-0 at half-time, and then they smashed four in. Uh, the momentum shifted as soon as Van Dijk's header went in. Then that goal from uh, Ngakpo. Then came in Diaz, who took his goal really well. And uh, yeah, after that, Harvey Elliott, he, he was brilliant in this entire game. So yeah. Um, Liverpool and Man City are keeping pace with themselves. I'm a bit sceptical about Arsenal because they're very new to this sort of uh, expectations wherein you have to perform in the Champions League and also in the league. So that takes a toll on yourself and and on your team as well. So let's see what happens. I think uh, as far as uh, the current situation goes, it is for me personally, it is a legitimate three-way title race statistically. But as I said, for me personally, I think it is only going to boil down between Liverpool and and Man City. So yeah, that's it from me in this podcast. Maybe we will, I will be making a podcast after this weekend because we've got some really interesting games. Uh, there is um, some interesting ties around in Italy with Milan playing Atalanta and some of the other games. And you've got um, my, you've got the great return of Sergio Ramos at the Bernabeu when Sevilla play uh, uh, Real Madrid at the Bernabeu. And of, of course, you've got the League Cup final. There is. Um, there is a small matter of Bayern against Leipzig. So maybe I'll come back next weekend. Who knows? Uh, after this weekend, not next weekend, but after this weekend. So yeah, until then, uh, be sure to check my Twitter account. It is weeklypod underscore OTT, W-E-E-K-L-Y-P-O-D underscore OTT, and my Instagram account, W-E-E-K-L-Y dot OTT. That's how you follow me on Instagram. But until then, this was your host, Mayuresh. Thank you very much. Cheerio!